welcome to a, a new season of The Balance Sheet, where you can rise above the noise and learn about the most critical business issues of our age. Before we get started, if you're new to the show, whether you're watching us on YouTube or LinkedIn, you can put questions or comments in your comments field. And you can start, as always, by putting in the comments where you're watching this from today. I'm your host and fellow student, Conrad Chua. Social media gave us that promise that every brand could reach a global market and global audience with just a click. And we all know how that's played out with the likes of the social media networks getting into the advertising game. But this, and that meant that big brands had a huge advantage when it came to global marketing. But in the last few years, geopolitical tensions, de decoupling, and the culture wars have found their way into global marketing. It's become a much more treacherous place for global brands to play with. So here to help us make sense of all this, we have a colleague of mine and great uh, professor of marketing, Professor Eden Yin. Welcome, Eden. Thank you, Conrad, for inviting me to this uh, platform, and I'm very much looking forward to sharing my thoughts with uh, all the audience online today. Eden, firstly, what kind mm -hmm. of brands are able to market on a global scale? Well, in order for a brand to market on a global scale, um, it has to have certain capabilities. Um, it doesn't have to be a large organization. It can be small or mid-sized organization. First of all, it has to have a global mindset. It has the ambition to be an important player on the global uh, business arena. And second, it has to have a, um, a culturally diverse team that can manage the complexity on a global scale. The third, the organization should have, uh, um, especially if you are not a massive organization, you should have uh, digital capabilities that allow you, even given the limited resources, uh, to reach customers around the globe. So uh, um, to put it simply, uh, what kind of brands can market itself globally? I think any brands that has ambition, uh, that has a, a digital technology and platform to reach the global audience um, can do that. It's no longer um, in the industry era, only the big player can reach the global market today. Uh, as we know in dig digital era, um, many organization uh, of small and mid size can, can be a successful global player. Mm. And uh, Eden, you have a fellow, uh, a former student of yours, Vicky, uh, in the audience. Uh, she's coming in from Taipei. So welcome, Vicky. Eden, you talk about how global brands need culturally diverse teams to help them think through uh, how a message can be uh, tailored, for example. How do, in your experience, how do these global brands organize themselves so that you have that one message, but it, how, you know, it may not play out in the same way in different markets? So how would global brands organize themselves so they can balance both that global message with local context? Well, I, I think that question really um, um, touch upon the, the heart of global marketing. Global marketing uh, is about um, 
standardize as much as you can and globalize or localize um, as much as you have to. Okay, so I um, I often in my class on global marketing offered here at the Judge Business School emphasize the the balance uh, our organization needs to strike between uh, global strategy, which represents a standard standardized approach to uh, to global markets, uh, versus a localized strategy that. Uh, uh, take into consideration of local, cultural, social, and um, economic uh, idiosyncrasy. Uh, regarding how, it's really a one million dollar question. So uh, I think companies often try to figure out the right balance between how much they should globalize versus how much they should localize. Uh, also, different companies have a different approach. Some more proactive company uh, that aspire to be a global player, they probably tends to follow a more a globalized approach, namely using not only just one message. I think marketing is more than just communication. They, they probably use one message, uh, one product design, uh, one, one type of channel, um, or one pricing scheme uh, around, the, around the world. Uh, Starbucks is one of the probably uh, best examples. So even though they adapted a little bit uh, when they uh, go to different markets, but uh, Starbucks remain the same. Uh, around the globe. So uh, if you go to Starbucks in Beijing versus Starbucks in New York, uh, they're more or less identical. Okay? So uh, I would say if you're a proactive uh, global uh, player, uh, you probably will go for a more globalized approach, use um, standardized approach that uh, um, um, for all markets. If you're more cautious, you tend to localize more. Uh, but we have to um, acknowledge the fact that if you localize more, uh, inevitably you have to bear higher cost because localization uh, implies cost. So um, I'm a, a believer of a global approach. So companies should uh, uh, use one approach to serve all markets. Of course, uh, in certain markets you have to localize. Localization, uh, again, for me, represents a cost. Uh, so. Um, um, I, I think, t especially today, uh, younger generation of global company, um, they are targeting at a, a global audience who are younger, more technology savvy, uh, more open-minded culturally. So uh, um, I think we shouldn't overemphasize the cultural difference across the globe. I think young people in New York, in Paris, in Beijing, they all behave more or less the same. They prefer same set of brands. So even though in the age of decoupling and uh, as, as Conrad mentioned early on, I still think company uh, should be optimistic about uh, the future of the global markets and uh, uh, adopt a more globalized approach when you, when you expand uh, in the international marketplace. Thanks so much for that, uh, Eden. We have someone, uh, Amin, who is a current, I guess, EMBA, can based in Toronto. So thank you so much, I mean, for mm. for coming in. Um, Eden, you mentioned that there's this uh, commonality across countries now because we have this quite starting to get quite well defined generation generational right. consumers. Yeah. But you also uh, have been teaching that nowadays with geopolitical tensions rising 
it does become more difficult for global brands to uh, think about global marketing. Yeah. So you've got a couple of slides here. Do you want to talk us through what are these factors that that global brands need to think about? Sure. Um, so to answer Conrad's question, um, the impact of uh, geopolitical tension on the global marketing practice today, I'd like to present a very simple framework, um, which I use a lot in my class. So this is what we call global marketing environment analysis. Essentially, before any company go global, uh, they need to look at um, uh, the macro environment of the mark target markets where they uh, they want to operate in. So uh, this is also what we call the past analysis. Um, P stands for political, E stands for economical, S stands for social, and T stands for technological. But in reality, as you can see from this framework, we should consider more than just four factors. So. I here highlighted political. Uh, because of the geopolitical tension we have observed, especially between China and the US, um, global marketing practice really have to take into consideration the risk factor associated with geopolitics. It doesn't mean they have to localize more. They just have to choose the target market more carefully. In the past, when a company go global, when they choose the target market they want to enter, uh, they were looking to uh, economic factor, they will look at uh, um, GDP per capita of the target market, they will look at the growth rate, uh, they mainly focus on the economic factors uh, when they choose the target market. Of course, they want to target a market that has a huge market potential. Uh, but these days, besides the economic potential of markets, they also have to pay great attention to the political factor political environment of that particular country of markets because political factor now is associated with high risk of running uh, overseas operation so that's why uh, if you ask me how is global marketing different uh, today from what we observed probably five to ten years ago is uh, the ability for organization to analyze the political environment has become a key driver for its success. Uh, so what I want to emphasize is um, the implication for global marketing um, of this um, geopolitical, um, of changing the geopolitical landscape, um, um, multifaceted and also quite profound. Um, internal marketing research, of course, as I mentioned uh, in the past, uh, marketing research primarily focused on customer need, customer one and competitor, an economic factor, a cultural factor, etc., etc. Um, but now, a geopolitical analysis would be a key component of your marketing analysis. That's number one. Number two, in terms of segmentation, uh, as I mentioned in the past, um, most of the organization, when they want to go global, they really consider global market as an open space. Uh, they are free to choose wherever they want to operate. Uh, it is just a matter of uh, cost and benefit, economic cost and economic return. Uh, but now I think more and more company, because of the geopolitical tension, they tends to be more regional based. So uh, when they when they go uh, go abroad, proximity become a key factor. They want to go to a, the, the country or markets that is uh, near to their home market. Uh, 
Um, so in terms of targeting, uh, as I mentioned, so uh, in the past, company tends to target a market that has the uh, uh, greatest uh, economic potential, but now political risk become a key factor to consider. So company tends to target a, a market that is more politically neutral. Uh, for give, give you an example for Chinese company, if they want to go abroad in the past, uh, they can choose either Europe, uh, US, North America, South America, uh, Africa, Middle East, etc., etc. But now they, they become a lot more cautious if they want to tap the US market. I think a lot of them, because of that reason, tends to focus on European markets and market elsewhere. In terms of positioning, positioning is a key strategic decision made in marketing, especially in global marketing. I think in the past, company tends to be quite open, transparent about their country of origin. But now these days, I think it's probably more prudent for certain company, for a company from a certain country, to disguise the identities of the country of origin effects. Um, can be more profound today um, uh, than in the past. So, um, so when, when I want to bring out global brands, when I want to bring up brands out and to develop a group, global brands, um, I think people tend to downplay uh, their country of origin to avoid any uh, po po political sensitivity. And product price promotion plays are the marketing for peace, as we all know. So uh, in terms of product, uh, I think more and more company um, start to pursue dual sourcing, namely they develop uh, um, alternative supply chain uh, just in case um, geopolitical tension leads to um, um, you know, the collapse of certain markets, they can have a backup plan. Um, so in terms of price, uh, I have not observed any um, uh, example or practice that is uh, um, uh, driven by the political or geopolitical concern, but I, I would suppose when companies go to a more risky market based on the political or geopolitical analysis, their product probably has to, the price of the product has to be risk adjusted to, to compensate for the uh, higher risk uh, they have to uh, encounter. In terms of promotion, um, if you want to advertise uh, your product services through uh, traditional um, advert uh, TV ads or social media or PR, um, I think these days probably safer for a brand to choose more global theme, uh, such as ESG. Um, uh, ESG is a global uh, agenda and uh, which is considered uh, a top priority across the world. Uh, by both governments and uh, ordinary citizens. So uh, I think ESG-centered uh, promotion uh, appears to be a, a safer approach when you want to go global. Uh, last but not the least is distribution. Uh, because of the risk factor um, become a, um, a new consideration when, when companies go global, it's a lot safer uh, for a company to adopt a digital distribution platform instead of a physical ones. So in other words, asset light operation in the global space uh, tends to be a more attractive options for, for companies today. So and then what are the organizational implications if you want to operate globally today in such a increasingly uncertain markets? Um, I think at least three things organization needs to think about. Number one, 
um, organization today um, has to develop new capabilities. As I mentioned, so geopolitical analysis uh, become a new capabilities for, for your research arm. So in the past, we emphasized cultural sensitivity. But today, organization needs to develop geopolitical sensitivities. Um, second is risk assessment capabilities. So when you go uh, global, uh, you shouldn't just assess the economic potential, you should also assess the risk potential, a uh, risk factor of the markets you want to, uh, you want to enter. The third is, of course, agility. Uh, the, the more risky and unstable the global environment become, the more agile your organization needs to become. Okay? So what makes the organization more agile? Obviously, digitization is a powerful means to achieve that goal. Uh, last, not the least, is organization, when you go global, you probably need to focus more on PR efforts and lobbying efforts. You have to make sure you develop a very healthy, uh, sustainable relationship with the local government local community, uh, media. So again, ESG become a very powerful tool to achieve that goal because ESG, as, as I mentioned earlier, is a global theme that uh, um, attracts uh, global attention. Second is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, firm absolutely needs to develop alternative supply chain. Um, that applies to every company around the world. Um, so with a plan B, you can ensure uh, your product services can be supplied on a sustainable, more resilient way. And third, uh, the last one is firm needs to manage the proactive-reactive balance. So what I mean by that is, uh, of course, with the rising geopolitical tension on a global scale, um, firms needs to be uh, cautious. Okay? So that's what I labeled as reactive. In certain markets, you have to be more cautious. Uh, you have to be, uh, uh, instead of being aggressive, so you have to uh, more slow and gradual approach, take a more slow and gradual approach. But in other markets, the markets where you think you can manage, you have to be more proactive. Why is that? Uh, because the market where you can operate well now shrinked due to political uh, consideration or constraints. So in the market where you can excel, you have to really do well. So you need to take a more proactive approach. In other words, you have to, um, you have to achieve uh, the same level return in a smaller number of market and, uh, and country. So uh, that's how country, uh, that's why uh, managing this proactive reactive balance also become a new uh, um, scale or, or capabilities organization needs to develop. So that's what I think um, uh, global marketing will look and feel like in today's uh, global environment. Of course, there's many other things we can discuss, but uh, in the interest of time, these are the key, me uh, key message I want to share on this particular platform now. Thanks so much, Eden. And we have uh, a couple of questions coming in. Just a reminder, if you have any questions about global marketing, just put them in the comments. Uh, whether on LinkedIn or YouTube. The first question is from Idam, who asks, what are some successful case studies of companies that have effectively navigated the challenges of global marketing associated with geopolitical instability? Okay. Um, even though today we talk about geopolitics, but it, is, it has been there all the time. So it was... It is not a new phenomenon. It is not a new challenge. It's just suddenly 
because we have had the, the global society has has enjoyed 40 years of stable, peaceful global environment. Suddenly, uh, things has changed. So we we we, we sort of uh, a little bit surprised by by the new reality. I can tell you, one company has has managed the geopolitical risk really well. Actually, is an American company called, called PNG. I think when uh, Soviet Union collapsed um, in the 80s, uh, most of the Western company decided to, to leave Russia. But PNG went the other way. PNG actually uh, strengthened their investment uh, in Russia. And, uh, and then PNG then, after Russia become, uh, regained stability as a market, PNG was given a very favorable policy and consideration by the government. That's why they, they, they developed their own distribution channel in Russia, such a massive market. That helped PNG to become a, a global leader in those days. Um, there's also recent example. I think uh, despite of the geopolitical tension between China and, uh, and the US, I think there's one Chinese company, I think many of you Many of them probably have heard of that company. It's a fast fashion company called Xing, or Xing, uh, whichever way you call it. It is a um, company from China, but has been extremely successful in Europe, also in the uh, I think in the U.S. as well, and uh, also uh, in Middle East. It become the second most popular downloaded uh, apps um, right after Amazon. Uh, globally. So again, despite of geopolitical tension, that company seems to thrive. So uh, again, why that company was so successful? Number one, I think the product category is probably less sensitive, right? It's, it's just fast fashion. Number two is uh, it has adopted a very asset light approach. So this company using a digital platform to reach the global customer. And so it's called D2C, direct-to-customer approach. And also the company has empowered by AI. So it can quickly understand the market need and uh, and use a very flexible supply chain. They can they can satisfy customer uh, uh, emerging need faster than anybody else, such as Zara and H and M. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think with technology, with the help of technology and AI, um, company can better understand the global market and better access to the global customers. In many way, it can mitigate the obstacles and extra difficulties and uh, cost or complexities caused by geopolitical uh, risk. Mm. You know, you mentioned PNG after the fall of the Soviet Union, yeah. um, and you said maybe it's because of that product category. And I'm reminded of when I was growing up in Singapore, uh, all these products, milk powder, things that I grew up with, yeah. uh, I thought they were, you know, a whole generation grew up with them. We all grew up thinking Nestle was a Singapore Malaysian company. Okay, right. That's and uh, is there a trick with these, you know, CPG companies where obviously Nestle is based somewhere in Switzerland, yes, yes. With, with a small domestic market, PNG office in America, big but still global. But somehow everybody grows up with these products, yeah, yeah. and they never think this is an American product or yeah. a Swiss product. Yeah, yeah. Is that something that? CPG companies, consumer product goods companies do? Yes. Uh, this is called um, localization, right? Not only localization. I think the example uh, Conrad mentioned, uh, like Nestle, they are deeply embedded in the local community. 
and the local customer didn't even know they're not from uh, from their own home country. Uh, there's also a number of Western co Western company and brands in China. They were so locally embedded, and the local customer considered them as as Chinese company. Um, well, that's one approach for a company to to adopt uh, in such a um, increasingly probably a politically sensitive environment. Namely, you become deeply embedded in the local environment. Um, but uh, there's a caveat. Number one is, I think in the past, especially in the digital era, when the communication information flow uh, were not as, as uh, easy and convenient and fast as we, we have now, uh, such approach can successfully disguise who you are. But today, even with all these approach uh, used by Nestle and PAG in the past, I think company, people can still easily find out where you're from. Okay? So company become a lot more transparent. Uh, number two is if you become deeply embedded, that means you invest heavily in the local markets, right? What if the situation become dramatically altered? Can you exit the market uh, easily uh, uh, with acceptable cost, uh, cost level? So that's not a big question. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I'm not quite sure. Uh, of course, uh, localization um, uh, will always be a strategy adopted by, uh, by many companies. It depends on product category and uh, industry. Uh, but I'm not sure in today's uh, environment, uh, if you pursue deep localization, uh, people will forget about where you're from. Mm. Of course, um, I remember things like brands like Coca-Cola, right? Or uh, Philip Morris with Marlboro and all that almost embraced their Americanness, yes. Americanness, yes. and it became almost uh, a big part of that selling point because exactly. people uh, behind the Iron Curtain, for example, they wanted to wear these Levi's mm. because they wanted those American uh, values. Americanness, Americana, yeah. yes. So is that still the case that someone you know things like uh, brands? that can embrace a certain part of these country values yeah. can still succeed? Um, that's a very good question. So uh, as I mentioned at very early on, I said I'm a big believer of using more standardized approach uh, when you go global. Uh, this is especially true if you're from a, a developed country such as the US or many of the Western European country. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, in under certain condition, if you keep your product foreignness intact, for example, if you're an American company, just go there, position yourself as an American company. Uh, it may be beneficial in the long run uh, for, for you to, um, uh, to operate as a business there. I recently completed a research paper with uh, two of my co-authors. We actually use a, a theoretical model to prove under certain condition, company will be better off in the long run from a profit perspective to intentionally uh, keep the cultural distance of product foreignness sometimes even to exaggerate the cultural distance. Uh, so we already have a theory to prove that. Uh, but, well, from an empirical uh, perspective, just look at uh, um, Starbucks, right? Starbucks recently, uh, not recently, a couple of years ago, opened a, a flagship store in Milan. You know, we all know Italy uh, is a coffee nation. So uh, Italians are very proud of their coffee culture. That's why Starbucks hasn't been very successful in Italy, partly because Italians consider Starbucks coffee as a fast food version of coffee, so it's not a proper coffee. So in this particular case, Starbucks should localize their product and services, try to become an Italian type of uh, company, 
to win the heart and mind of Italians. But quite, quite opposite. On the contrary, Starbucks exaggerate the difference between their product offer and the local Italians offer. Okay? So they purposely keep their foreignness uh, in themselves. Uh, it's still too early to see whether that approach will in the, in the end pay off in, in, in Italy, in the particular market. But based on our own research, theoretically, it will pay off because that turns out to be, it should be the optimal strategy for Starbucks. Mm. Well, we'll wait to see if Budweiser starts to sell, outsell all these German beers in Germany. <laughs> um, we've got some questions here. So Sanyaki asks, mm. how do you see organizations who want to move towards more global marketing activities, structuring their human resources? Should it be more centralized in global HQ and just have some operational teams in local markets? I think this completely depends on the industry and the size of your organization. As I mentioned, today, even small player can become a global player. <clears throat> but from a human resources perspective, I'm not an expert in HR, but I have talked to a lot of companies. Um, if you are a large company, I think you should at least have a one layer of management that is centralized because global operation needs synchronicity. So if you localize your team, it's just become much, much harder to consolidate all your resources to achieve a bigger strategic objective. Uh, but for smaller companies, especially in technology industry, I think probably localize your team is a viable approach. I'll give you an example. There's a Chinese company, the parent company of uh, TikTok, we call ByteDance. It's a large technology conglomerate in China. And then they've been globalizing their business. As you know, TikTok is one of the most popular app you know, for, for younger generations around the globe. It seems to be very successful. Uh, they have completely adopted a localized approach. So which, wherever they go, Germany, UK, America, they have a completely localized team. So on the one hand, localized team help them to quickly adapt to the local environment to, you know, to, 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 to be uh, successful in reaching local customers. But on the other hand, localized team also create a lot more complexity and uh, in terms of managing the headquarter and uh, local operations. So many of the local team, I, 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 I don't have a specific uh, numbers, um, many of the local team do not synchronize with the headquarter that well. It actually become a hindrance to their uh, achievement of uh, corporate goal as a, as a global company. So uh, it's very hard to see should we be more globalized, uh, more localized. There's a, there's a benefit of both. I think in the end, it's a balance. Depends on industry and the size of your organization, stage of your brand development, how much you should be global, how much you should be centralized, how much you should be localized. But drawing that line, uh, um, it's again, it's a challenge of global marketers. So, mm -hmm. Not only global marketers, I think it's, it's an issue of global organizations. So um, uh, where, where to draw the line? So every company probably have to figure out, figure out their own way to, to get to that optimal point. Yeah, and you mentioned TikTok, of course. Uh, I think Sayaki's question about HR is really important because now yeah. how you treat your staff yeah. in a social media fuel world really um, spills over to the, your consumer market because Absolutely. TikTok uh, got into some difficulties when sure. they were expanding, especially in the UK, yeah. in terms of their workplace practices. Yeah. Um, Dan has a question. Dan asks, can you expand on this proactive, reactive approach? 
How do you develop this new skill organizationally? Well, that's a very good question. I think it's a it's a new um, reality organization is facing. I, uh, for example, I have done a lot of research on Chinese company. So um, uh, in the past, Chinese company uh, can, um, in theory, can enter any markets uh, uh, around the world. But now, um, U.S. market is probably become uh, more risky. So then, the number of the market they can operate. Uh, successfully is, is greatly reduced because U.S. markets often represent a quarter, at least a quarter of the global markets. So then they are reactive, so they, they retracted their, their operations from the U.S. And, uh, but then for the limited market, they can operate. They have to be really proactive. They have to really deeply penetrate these markets, right? In the past, I think organizations focus more on speed of expansion. They want to cover as many countries as possible. They are looking for uh, market share. But now I think the key is really market penetration. So within certain markets, you have to be extremely proactive in deeply penetrate the local markets. Okay? So that's what I mean by proactive versus reactive. Reactive means retract from certain markets, but then be, be, be more active in, in penetrating existing markets. So how do we develop that capability? Good question. I don't know. I, I, don't, I haven't seen any company that gone that far yet, but I believe that's a very important capability organization needs to develop these days. Hmm. Um, you mentioned Xi'an. So Georgia from Boston asked, how do you expect consumers' attitudes to uh, change, you know, if any, because of geopolitical situations? So some consumers have boycotted Xi'an due to these geopolitical concerns. Right. I don't think uh, they boycott Xi'an because of geopolitical concerns. I think they boycott Xi'an is because of concern of the environment, because fast fashion is, uh, is not uh, very friendly towards the environment. Um, when will geopolitical concern become a major factor when consumers choose product services? That's a very good question. Uh, remember in the 80s, right, in the U.S., um, because of the rise of Japanese products, especially consumer electronics, Panasonic, and Sony, etc., etc., the American uh, companies of the same industry uh, really got squeezed. So then they start to play up the the uh, um, the U.S. Japan um, uh, uh, sort of uh, sentiment uh, built up during the Second World War. They would they would also they, would, they start to see you know what they start to politicize all these business activities. They would see you know Japanese invasion use very emotional words right Japanese invasion again and all that. They try to um, uh, stimulate uh, people's hatred resentment towards Japan because of the Second World War. Uh, it worked, right? So uh, you, uh, many uh, uh, angry American customers went on the street and smashed, you know, the TV set of TV, uh, from Sony or, or a refrigerator from Panasonic. Um, but we haven't gone that far yet for now. I hope we will never go, get to that stage. So I believe globalization is benefit for anybody. So. Uh, I, 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 I hope no company, no government on this planet will police, overly politicize uh, uh, commerce and business transaction. Uh, go back to Rick, David Ricardo, right? So division of labor is good for everybody. So globalization essentially is a division of labor. So whichever country excel in particular task, you just let them focus on that particular task. And through trading, everybody benefits. So I'm a believer, big believer of globalization. So. I also think, I'm also 
not as pessimistic as some of my colleagues and friends. I think uh, decoupling uh, will be a reality, uh, but uh, global commerce will not uh, uh, hugely uh, affected um, by decoupling. So organization, creative organization, proactive organization will always be able to figure out a way to make global commerce uh, happen uh, on a, a, a large scale. So Eden, following from that, I've got to put you on the spot. Tim's yeah. question is about Taiwan in this US-China relationship. You have TSMC obviously caught in the middle. Sure. So Tim's question is, how do you, you think TSMC should navigate these intricate geopolitical challenges? <laughs> I think this is a very difficult question. Uh, Have they invited, has TSMC invited you to their next board, <laughs> board meeting? Not yet. Not uh, yet. I, uh, honest, my honest answer is very difficult for this company because their largest customer uh, is a uh, is Chinese company. Um, but then um, uh, but they're under enormous pressure from the US. So they're using uh, well, most of the key technology they, they use are from the US. Of course, US has a legitimate rights to say, you know what, uh, we don't want you to use our technology to help uh, our competitors. So I don't know, it's very, very difficult. I don't know what, how they're going to navigate. I think ultimately it's, uh, it's a decision made by the US and Chinese government. Uh, in recent, recent months, I see some positive signs, both, both sides start to uh, have a more healthy, constructive dialogue, I mean, between China and the US. I guess both sides realize that uh, um, it's not a zero-sum game and uh, it's, in the, it's in everybody's interest to work together. If you imagine China and the US really uh, getting to a direct confrontation, that would be a disaster for the whole world. So I think uh, politicians in both countries are sophisticated enough to recognize that. So uh, I hope the, 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 the conundrum right, that, that this Taiwanese company is currently in is uh, uh, only a temporary one. And uh, uh, hopefully in the next uh, one or two years, the US will allow, again, allow Chinese company to, to buy their high-end microprocessors, uh, largely manufactured by this Taiwanese company. I, I hope that will happen. I think there's, there's a high chance that will, that, that will happen. So uh, I don't think that the, the confrontation between US and China could last for, for too long because it hurt both sides and hurt the rest of the world. Mm. Of course, we. I think American companies would hope China opens up in places like social media, technology, yes, in those yes. markets as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Nandika asks um, this whole idea of dual sourcing. I mean, how how difficult is it when you've got to source from markets with geopolitical tensions? You know, whether that's uh, as you mentioned, TSMC or Apple, I guess. Yeah. Getting products from TSMC, getting their. Uh, iPhones assembled in China? Uh, if, of course, it's very difficult, but uh, it's easier than in the past. Um, number one, um, I think uh, because of uh, economic and technological development, there are a lot more companies around the world uh, that have the capabilities to manufacture parts and services that used to be only accessible by the large companies. So, uh, give you an example. Uh, many European companies now are developing, uh, they, they have an existing global supply chain. Um, now they are developing uh, uh, 
separate alternative supply chain just for the Chinese market. So how, how do they do that? There's a, in, enough number of Chinese technology company that can be assembled into a new supply chain, even though the quality of that, the overall quality of that supply chain probably still cannot compare with existing, you know, world-class global supply chain consists of a leading company from all developed, developed country G7. But uh, is, they're not too far behind. So I heard from, uh, from uh, some executive in China. So they are a, a cheap design company. So European manufacturer approached them and then they started to develop a completely Chinese made supply chain for Chinese markets. Okay? Um, so again, as I said, it's, it's, uh, it's not easy, but it's not impossible. And uh, I think uh, uh, with the development of Southeast Asia, Vietnam, uh, India, uh, there will be more viable um, partners for uh, organizations to choose from to construct the uh, alternative supply chain. I think uh, that has already been happening. Um, most of the global companies are doing that, and some of them probably has already successfully established that already. Mm. We'll have one last question from Aisha, who asks, what about celebrity endorsements as part of localization? Um, yeah, it's just one approach, right? It depends on the country, depends on the markets, depends on your product category. Uh, so uh, it's just one approach. It's uh, localization can can take so many different form and shapes. So uh, for certain country, it could be very effective. Mm. Yeah, and of course you've got Taylor Swift endorsing your new strategic marketing course um, <laughs> not strategic marketing course it's sustainable su marketing. sustainable marketing yeah. course yeah. do you want to tell us a, yes, a bit about course, what, what is this uh, sustainable marketing um, course our marketing department here at the Judge Business School uh, Professor Jadip and myself along with two senior fellows of the Judge Business School we have uh, recently uh, launched literally last week we have launched a very successful program called sustainable marketing it's an open program for executive education It's a four-day program uh, basically we uh, reconceptualize marketing practice from a sustainability especially ESG perspective so how do we how do we practice marketing uh, in the in the ESG era namely how do we make sure environment, social, and governance factors are sufficiently considered in your marketing practice? At the same time, also generate profitability for the organization. So it's a four-day program. It was it was a success. I think delegates really enjoying the class. Our rating is four point eight out of five, which is fairly impressive for. Inauguration uh, program, so we only uh, launched it last week. So, um, I believe ESG uh, will be a central component of any business operation around the world. Uh, any organization really needs to develop uh, uh, their ESG focus, um, not only in marketing, in every practice uh, they they are currently uh, pursuing. So, uh, please um, help us promote this program. Uh, globally, and if you are interested in uh, participating in that program yourself, of course you are very welcome. So uh, get in touch with us. Thank you so much, Eden. And for those who are interested, there's the QR code at the upper right-hand corner that shows 
that will bring you to the website webpage for sustainable marketing leadership. All right. Thank you. Well, so Eden, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. It's obviously a treacherous time for many, for several of these global brands, but it's clear that with some careful thought, lots of organizational changes, that the successful brands can navigate these difficult times. Yeah. And thank you, the audience, for joining us with your questions. I'm sorry we didn't have time to go through all of them. The balance sheet will be back next week. Angela Lai. Head of APAC and Valuation Research with Prequin will be here to talk about private capital markets. These are the trends involving private equity, VC, uh, private credit, infrastructure spending, and it involves hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, family offices. Join us 6 October, 12.45 p.m. UK time. Till then, have a safe uh, week and we'll see you next time. 